0: Ultimately, the goal is to be present, to learn how to tune in and to be aware of the moments, the people, the circumstances and our interpretation of them, because what the most of us are doing is we're applying old stories to current events.
1: Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. We're doing it the right way anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Travis Makes Friends. Today, I have the pleasure of making friends with Dr. Nicole LaPera at the Holistic Psychologist over on Instagram. Go check out some of her stuff. Nicole, welcome to the show once again. Thank you so much for having me, Travis. Okay, so I'm in a lot of group chats, as I'm sure you are, with random friends from high school, from the business world, whatever. And we're always constantly DMing each other, random stuff that we find online. And The majority of it is probably not things that should be shared publicly. They're just ridiculous, stupid things that make us laugh or whatever. But I will say that of all of the serious posts that we send to each other back and forth, I think yours are at the top of the list in terms of volume. I just want to say congratulations for putting out such amazing, helpful, shareable content. I'm honored
0: and thank you all for sharing it amongst your group of friends. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Of course. Okay. The first time we did an
0: interview... It was for
1: your other book, your first book. But now we're talking about the workbook, How to Meet Yourself. And I have to say, this is, I think, going to be not to pigeonhole you or anything, but I think this is the most important work that you've put out to date because of how focused it is on making people actually do the work. Like It's not called a book. It's literally called a workbook. And it's like... As soon as you dive in, there's stuff for you to immediately start doing. It's here's some information, here's some information, here's some information, and then like immediately do something, not like entire pages of questions that people have to ask themselves. And I know as a psychologist and as a clinical psychologist, you got to probably get pretty good at asking questions. And that's something that I've really been diving into a lot lately, especially as an interviewer myself, and then trying to figure out ways to increase quality of life overall practices and disciplines. And the one thing that it keeps coming back to, even this, uh, there's another book literally on my desk right now, and it's a totally different book, about a totally different topic. And the subtitle is 10 questions to focus your efforts and blah, 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 blah. And it's just, the more I get into this, the more I start realizing that it really is like the quality of our life really is dependent on the quality of the questions that, that we can ask or the quality of questions that we can ask ourselves. How do you view question asking and asking the right questions, especially when it comes to doing the work of meeting yourself? how do you view those things intertwining and how important is that?
0: Yeah, I actually love this. And I don't think I specifically thought about it in the context of the questions to ask or ultimately the right questions. Though I think the the process of inquiry, of looking at ourselves is in my opinion, the, the basis of change. You'll always hear me. Mm-hmm. As I often do, I simplify concepts that I talk about. I simplify the process of transformation of relieving our suffering of changing our lives into two steps. And the first step will always be becoming conscious to what it is, how things are, in particular, what role I'm playing to create the outcomes, the habitual outcomes, more often than not, that I continue to get. Once we see how things are, the role I'm playing, then we can make that next step into choice. So even just weaving in this concept of questioning, I think one of the greatest questions we can begin to ask ourselves is, What role am I playing in these outcomes that I continue to get in the course of my life? And the large majority of us and myself included, I think for a very long time, we don't feel like we are an active participant in creating our current circumstances, though, of course, that's what my first book, How to Do the Work, is really about, is showing all of this unconscious, subconscious world that is creating those habitual outcomes that we can then become present to so that we can become that active participant. So I think that would be the primary first question is, what role am I playing? How am I creating what's happening around me so that I can begin to make those new choices to create the change that I'm looking for?
1: It's It seems like, it seems like there's a lot of people that are almost afraid of taking that first step and are actively avoiding asking themselves the right questions. And I, I don't know exactly why that is. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. A hypothesis of mine is that awareness breeds accountability and once you become aware of something it's all of a sudden now on you to decide whether or not you're going to fix it and that doesn't feel good we want to think that everything bad that's happening to us is our environment's fault and it was our parents' fault and it was our teachers' fault and it was culture's fault and and i'm just trying to do the best i can with all the crap sandwich that the world fed me you know what i mean I, that's again that's just my kind of my my hypothesis here am, am i wrong in thinking that way how do you think about like what Can make people jump into that first step of becoming aware that the problem exists and that they are ultimately the ones responsible
0: in solving that problem. I think to speak to your point, it absolutely opens up the aspect of personal responsibility and then all of the ways that we could feel about ourselves, the humans in our family, the environments that we've come from that have created that way of being. But I think even before we get to accountability, I think it's really natural and understandable that many of us, and I'll again speak from my own lived experience, we don't feel a participant because all of this happens so outside of our awareness that it seems to us that we go about life and circumstances happen and we don't have the space to see that underlying whatever event happened outside of my being internally, that I've A, interpreted that event, that my body has shifted into some sensation, right? It's beginning to perceive what's happening and and assess on one major area is, is this something that's safe? Is this something I've experienced before? Is there possibly something that's threatening in this moment? Again, now I'm interpreting what's happening based on how my body is reacting, based on old mental narratives that I've been repeating so many of us for as long as I can remember based on the earliest ways that I've learned to make sense of my circumstances. And then I might tune in mid-reaction, right? Mm mid-implosion or explosion, or maybe even somewhere after the fact where I'm feeling shameful and where I don't feel like I've had that space to say, wait a minute, I'm participating, I'm playing a role, I'm interpreting this, my body is shooting myself into this reaction, I'm not located in this equation at all. So it's very understandable, I think, as many of us age in years and repeat this cycle subconsciously outside of our awareness for decades of time, that when you hear someone say, You're playing a role in what's happening. It is really easy to, you know, if not just roll our eyes, outright defend. And I know I did this about how that's not the case. I was actually talking to my sister earlier this morning. We were having this exact conversation, which was some version to complicate things further. Not only are most of us in autopilot unaware of the role that we're playing, some of us were very much modeled that externalization the world is happening to me. I can't affect Mm -hmm. change. It's overwhelming to me. And that was very much what we were taught in my family home. So we both are acknowledging how difficult it is to factor ourselves in, to see the role that our interpretations are playing, to see the role that our dysregulated nervous system is playing in terms of forming those interpretations and to ultimately locate me as an active player. But I think that's an important aspect of it is it's so unconscious to us that understandably we are like what are you talking about nicole we don't yeah. have i'm not able to change and until we really become conscious of our self self in that process we will feel a victim to our circumstances
1: and especially cuz up to that point of awareness all you've ever practiced is that version of yourself like that thought process that spiraling that happens that like state of anxiety or depression or fill in the blank is forced from something that happened early on. But also, it's the state that we've practiced every day since then, until the moment that we've become aware that we play a part in it and we have the actual ability to change it. And even then, it feels almost impossible because it's so habitual and it's so subconsciously rooted into our entire routine that it's just so easy to just get addicted to that feeling and then feel so comfortable, even if it's a bad feeling just because I know that feeling, even though, yeah, I'm anxious. Yeah, I'm depressed. But like, at least I know what to expect. At least I know I'm going to end up in my boxers with a handful of Doritos crumbs watching crappy TV or something like that. At least I know that's the path for me. And there's some sort of comfort in that, right? Even as weird or as messed up as that sounds.
0: So much wisdom in what you're describing. Absolutely, Travis. There is comfort in the familiar because we love as humans to be in control, to be able to predict What happens next? Even if it's an an uncomfortable outcome of having the Doritos on my chest or whatever it might be, even if that's what you want to avoid. And maybe you even objectively came up with all of the consequences of that to your subconscious mind, which is driving all of our behavior, which is driven by our nervous system. It is only prioritizing the safety of that next moment. And the habitual familiarity of those patterns will feel safer than the threat that's in that possible unknown. And to speak to another point you very beautifully made in there, these habits for many of us, because we are like the horse with blinders on it, become, for some of us, part of our personality. We do think it's our identity. We wrap ourselves in this habitual way of being and we don't even see the possibility of showing up in a different way, of having a different response in those moments, because we begin to then recite things like, this is just how I am or who I am, not understanding that this habitual way of being, again, was born out of our circumstances, not out of something intrinsic about us in general.
1: Is this where environment and relationships come in a little bit? Because I even as you're saying, like that last piece, I really love that last piece where you, where you talk about how it, it actually, it starts embedding into our personality and becomes our identity, not just a, an extension of ourselves, but who we are. And I felt that that way in my life about a couple of things about myself that, that I was just like, you know what? I, I feel like, I feel like I I am more this way because people labeled me as that and I just bought into what other people observed about me, maybe on a bad day or something, but I bought into the fact that that was my identity. And now I search that out and seek that out. And my biases like move me in like toward action in these areas that don't even make sense to me, or like they rob me of some sort of inner joy that maybe I had in the past. And I feel like the things that have helped, and again, this is something that I struggle with to this day. So I'm not acting from a place of, oh, I've made it. But I think one thing that's helped me at least identify those things is allowing myself to get around other people who. Don't know me in that capacity, or who are used to constant change and aren't meeting you with this abrupt. Like, what? Who are you trying to be, bro? You're not even. That's not you. You're you're saying this stuff. Like, why are you smiling? You look weird right now. You're usually like the chill. You know what I mean? I have in my mind this version and brand of you. And if you try to boot, be, or do anything that exists outside of that, then you're not real or genuine, or you're trying to be someone you're not. You just need to accept who you are. You know what I mean? Like that environment can really just crack you back down into this mode of comfort or lack of growth. How would you recommend people think about that and and try to get outside
0: of that? I think the first beautiful awareness again that you're sharing in there is that we come to know ourselves. to speak to, I think, a question you, you were asked a bit earlier about relationships. We come to know who we are in relationships, beginning in our earliest relationship. There is no self on an island. We are interconnected, interpersonal beings. We're wired. We are in a physical state of dependency as a human infant. We can't sustain life on our own. There has to be some degree of a present caregiver showing up consistently to just literally keep us alive. So then when we talk about psychological concepts like sense of self, who I am, right, that is very much defined in how I was able, how safe I was to express who I am in those earliest relationships. And Mm. the reality for many of us is we didn't have a safe, grounded, curious, attentive caregiver who was able to explore us as a different being. We either grew up in an unsafe environment. We didn't have that level of attunement. We were seen as an extension, right, of our parents. And given all of this messaging of what we should and shouldn't be, And before long, who we come to know ourselves as then is a byproduct of how we had to be, the adaptations we had to make in these very early relationships. So again, we are not solo individuals, even if we don't feel connected to the relationships around us, who we think we are was created out of those relationships. And then to complicate it further, to go on with your point of how embedded then we become in these relationships, as we begin to come to new awareness leave home, meet new friends, try on new aspects of our being, have the freedom to do that. And then we turn around and try to right, express these different parts of ourself in a system that's become so locked by expectations, right? I've always showed up this one way. And now here I am, lo and behold, doing something different. At minimum, we're going to violate a lot of expectations. So there's going to be a lot of surprised humans that are having something unfamiliar now in front yeah. of them that then might, React from a much more complicated place of threat, might begin to feel abandoned, might not necessarily like this Mm. new way that we're showing up. And then we might get different degrees of kickback where before long, the pressure internally, it already feels uncomfortable enough to do something unfamiliar, right? My nervous system is alerting me that this could be scary, be careful, tread slowly. And now if I couple that with the external environment screaming at me, right? To stop being different. Who do I think I am? Better than me? Before long, before I know it, I am right back in those old familiar patterns.
1: Yeah. No, that's so well said. And I appreciate you expounding that a little bit. I'm curious, selfishly. Okay. And for some context, I think the last time we spoke, my son was maybe a year old or something. We didn't have my daughter, but now we have a two-year-old girl (laughs) and we have a three and a half, my son's three and a half now. And I am constantly thinking about how like, screwed up my kids are going to be when they get older. <laughs> because I've come to the conclusion, Nicole, that no matter how hard I try, I don't have any control over something that they're going to experience because of me, That's they're going to be talking to their therapist about when they're 28, 33 or whatever years old, trying to work through something because their dad messed them up with something. I am curious from your perspective, how to kind of walk that line as a parent, because I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about this. I think it was on Joe Rogan or something but he's talking about how he's walking through Central Park in New York. And he saw a mom and her son walking next to each other. And he saw a puddle in front of them. And his mind immediately went to, Oh, this, this little boy is going to see that puddle. He's going to want to jump in It's going (laughs) to splash. It's going to be awesome. And he sees, he sees this playing out in front of him in real time. And he sees a, a look in the mom's eye where she saw the puddle as well. And then his immediate thought was like, no, 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 please don't keep him from doing that. And then she immediately, of course, like, moved him away don't jump in the puddle i wouldn't let him jump in the puddle and he was like he was basically saying from the extent that like if you start squelching your children's curiosity then that will prevent them from finding out that version of themselves or that will prevent them from being playful and and experiencing what life has to offer and so i I've, I've always been conscious of that with my kids it's like i want them to engage in curiosity and i want them to like even if it's more of a mess for me sometimes like i want them to you know put their hand in their food or feel things like experience things and but also I don't want them to grow up being a brat that can do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it without any discipline or structure, because that's not a good situation either. How can I as a parent, how can we as parents practically work through that yin and yang?
0: Yeah. I want to first offer all of the respect and compassion in the world for the the tall order that that is parenting to have to right, consistently and endlessly be available to another human outside of yourself is is no easy feat. And I, and I say that again with all of the all of the compassion and all of the respect to parents in in the world. To speak to your point about teaching children, allowing them to live the natural. This is the language I would use: the natural consequences of their actions. Right to jump in a puddle and see if they like being wet, being muddy, being dirty. They may, they may not, and allow them to then navigate the choices that they're making within safe parameters. And that's really the the job, quote unquote, of a parent is to put in the safety in place to make sure that child can continue to sustain life in a safe manner, though to allow them those moments of maybe doing something that you wouldn't do or you would advise against within reason and allowing them to determine, right, if outcomes are aligned for them because this is something we have to remember when we're raising other humans even if they look like us even if they are seemingly similar to us in a lot of ways they are still different so maintaining that curiosity there's another huge gift in being able to admit the imperfections of us as a human and us as a parenting human and what i mean when i say that is i think a lot of us have this idea and I know myself. Not even being a parent, I have this kind of drive to perfection. Um, again, originating from my own childhood, originating from how I got validation in my childhood, originating from the overwhelming stress stress in my family's life. With this idea that if I'm perfect, right, I won't add to the already debilitating stressful feelings in my home. I've learned, however, that perfection is not only impossible; it over time prevents and it's prevented me from pushing myself through challenging situations, from doing new things, from taking chances that might resonate with me out of fear of not being perfect in doing it. And what is the most valuable skill that you can teach a child is how to be imperfect, how to come back and say, you know what? I parented at you one way for this amount of time and now I have some new information and I'm not perfect and we might not know exactly what's going to happen now moving forward, but we're going to try something new right? When we teach that version of repair, even maybe an apology, hey, I used to do things this one way. And I'm now understanding that might be painful to you, child, right? I'm sorry for the impact of these actions. And now I can change. That is such a gift, in my opinion, to give our children. So throwing out the idea of being a perfect parent, understanding compassionately, again, that as any of us being human, we're impacted by the skills and tools and environment we grew up in. So we only know what we know. And as we expand our awareness, as we listen to conversations like this and gather some new tools, It is not shameful to begin to change and model that change and maybe model that responsibility going back to that topic, model apologies, model doing something new and different. It's not going to debilitate our children. It's actually, in my opinion, going to create resilience and give them the opportunity to continue to modify themselves as they grow and age and gain information that we don't even have access to yet, that we don't even know what's coming.
1: Yeah. You've branded yourself wisely. And I think that's actually part of your origin story, quote unquote, as the holistic psychologist. And from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you were basically doing a lot of clinical work with people and then started realizing that, oh, this isn't just about the mind. There's more if we really want to affect real change, then we have to deal with more than just the mind. And so you talk about this mind, body, soul, complete holistic experience that you have to understand each of these things in order to create true true change in your life. Can you expound on that just for a brief second? Then I have a couple quick questions on, on how you parse through the importance of those three things.
0: Yeah. So I came to this awareness of the importance of it after traditionally trying to attempt change from just the mind, right? Having this private practice where people came in and we talked about, we explored their past, their present issues. We even came up with an actionable game plan about how to make those new choices to relieve the symptoms of suffering, break The conflict that was having, I did a lot of work in relationships and what I would see week after week was not a report of how great these new tools were working, was actually a, a disempowered, almost frustrating report of how it doesn't matter how much insight and awareness I have. I can't seem to either create these new habits, create this change, break the habit that doesn't serve me or maintain it. And Hmm. in seeking to understand why I was really opened up to how foundationally important the body in particular is dysregulation in particular around our nervous system that many of us have, you know, that have been impacted by those earliest environments, which weren't safe, which didn't have that attuned caregiver, which now still lives in our body, which no amount of white knuckling it, affirming, right, how we want peace or something different in our lives is gonna actually create change. Even going back to what we were just touching on, our body is so wired within that familiar range of patterning that it doesn't want to change. You will feel uncomfortable. You will become conscious of all of that underlying emotion that you've been distracted from for so long. So shifting focus and really honoring the full embodiment of us, the body that is in endless communication with that mind, and also the uniqueness. Whether or not you like the term soul or spirit, or maybe you prefer essence, I think most of us have an idea that there is something unique about each of us as individuals and really allowing that and allowing our bodies and our mind and our thought to be a channel for that is really what my work I'm interested most in. Because what most of us are operating, again, is that autopilot, all the habitual patterns of dysregulation that served us in one environment, but don't continue to serve us as we grow and as we change.
1: So what are some things that we can do on the physical side? Since everything's interconnected, is this like the cold plunge, breath work, exercise. What are some actual practical things like, Hey, you're feeling this way. Maybe it's just because you need sleep, or maybe it's just because you have eaten nothing but packaged foods for the last two days, and you don't have any real nutrition in your body and your brain can't even feed off of the energy that you're giving it. And that's why you feel foggy or what, what are some actual practical ways that this kind of shows up in our daily lives, especially how it affects our our mind?
0: The first one I'm going to say might sound so simplistic that I'm some listeners might even roll their eyes. And the first foundational connection to rebuild is that you're living in a body. And I say this for the many of us who are always lost in thought, always in our mind, somewhere else, as I call it on my spaceship, where I don't really even know where I'm at, but I'm definitely not attuned to my physical body. I might only tune in when I have a screaming headache or right when I'm so tense, I'm like buckled over and I might not even tune in then. So really consciously learning how to shift that focus of attention from my endless worry-based thoughts, from that blank mind. Again, that might be that state of nervous system shut down and learning how to be present in my body. And then once I'm present in my body, what I might be met with is tension, discomfort, feelings that have been accumulating for some of us decades of our life, which makes it really understandable why I don't want to pay attention and why that body doesn't feel safe. So when I really labor this point of rebuilding that foundational connection to our body, it is so important, so simple, yet so foundational because if I'm paying most attention somewhere else to my mind, to the external environment, you know, as well, I'm not able to then beautiful suggestions you made, tune into how food makes me feel. Do I feel, you know, revitalized when I eat or do I feel lethargic? What about sleep? Am I impacted by the amount of hours most of us as humans don't sleep to the extent that we need to sleep? Can I begin to pay attention to how I'm moving my body, releasing the tension in my by stretching, by gentle movement? Can I also build in restful moments? That's just as important. Resting my muscles, allowing my body to repair as moving them is? Can I tune into the way my body is breathing, learning how to breathe in a grounded way from my belly as opposed to quick from my chest? These are all things that we gain access to once we begin to pay attention to our body. So for me, I can't stress how important that is, which could mean just beginning to become present to yourself during your day. One of the tools, it's so simple, I like to suggest because most of us walk around with a cell phone. So whether you're setting an alarm on your cell phone, writing some Post-it notes, maybe you know, in, on the mirror, posting it that you walk by at a certain time during the day and giving yourself a reminder. When that reminder alert goes off, when you walk by that Post-it note, in that moment, first just tune into where is your attention? Were you fully present in your body in the experience of walking from room to room or whatever it is that you're doing when your alarm goes off on your phone? or is your attention somewhere else? And I imagine the large majority of listeners will come to find that they're not present in their bodies. They're not even tuning into how it is that their body feels. So really rebuilding that connection then does open the door to those other practical suggestions where we can intentionally now shift the way my body is feeling, release some of that stress or that tension that's in my body that's been accumulating over time and even begin to make sense of the emotional experience of my physiological body because that's what emotions are. They register in my body. Things happen that I can feel assuming I'm paying attention to my body.
1: And then how do we start controlling, or at least, I don't don't even know if controlling is the right word, maybe producing the correct or maybe just better feelings. This is something that I've, I've just been exploring a lot lately, Nicole, just because if you subscribe to any sort of stoic philosophy or anything like that, they always talk about there's the event, And then there's your interpretation of the event that gives it negative, positive, or neutral meaning to that event. And our feelings are oftentimes our body or mind's initial reaction, just the crude, brutal reaction to whatever the event happened. And how you happen to be feeling that day will largely, or or maybe the severity of the event itself will largely contribute to the way that you feel about it. How much of that is good, like letting you your emotions come out, letting your body feel the way that it should feel, versus how much of it is is giving away too much control to outside environments that we can't control? I, I guess is the question. Like, because I, I I have I almost have a problem with thinking that if I'm feeling a certain way, that's probably for a reason, and I probably shouldn't just immediately be like, no, that's bad. That's a bad feeling. Feel something different. Generate this other feeling because it's on you. You can decide to be happy or whatever. It's well, so I think it's probably pretty good to experience the whole spectrum of human emotion within some sort of moderation. I just don't know how to think about that.
0: Yeah. So I'll go as far to say, not only do emotions give us our human experience, they animate our life. There's value in them, right? When I feel angry, usually I'm getting a message that there's some violation. I'm feeling like overstepped in some way. So our emotions contain information. So the last thing we want to do is keep them so below the surface that we're not aware they're happening or try and strong arm, shame ourselves for having them or strong arm them away. I think that is just a form of very commonly used word is bypassing all of the same. Our goal is to make space to be present to our emotions because there is value in them. Not only again, do they color our life and allow us to feel and embody the experiences that we're having, they might be something we want to pay attention to in certain moments. They might be indicating when we need to shift our path or shift our behavior. The reality for most of us, though, is, is we don't know how to have that safe relationship. We don't know how to be a safe container for our own emotional experiences. We, we either suppress them overwhelmingly and never allow us to tune into the fact that they're still happening below the surface Or we just react from them and we don't have any space to build in that responsiveness. So ultimately, the goal is to be present, to learn how to tune in and to be aware of the moments, the people, the circumstances and our interpretation of them, because what the most of us are doing is we're applying old stories to current events. Mm. So what we're feeling might not necessarily be an accurate reflection of what's happening, though if we don't or if we turn our attention away from the reality that it's happening, we're just continuing to keep it alive in our in our bodies. So we can distract ourselves, but it doesn't mean that the energy of that past story isn't still the case. We can be present though and determine whether or not that old story applies, which might allow us then to metabolize the emotion, shift out of that energetic feeling. And that's what most of us can then begin to do, not continue to live in the story of what happened, as I know I have done for decades of my life. I can rehash something that happened so long (laughs) ago, right? And call up the same upset in this moment, like it just happened yesterday. So now we can again see the role we're playing and continuing to live on these emotions, but just because they come from some older place, If they're happening in our body, they're real. So allowing them to happen, being present while they happen, maybe being intentional about how we can allow our body to create grounding while they're happening if they're feeling overwhelming or create relaxation. Whatever it is that we need, we can be an assistant aid. But -hmm. to speak to your point, we never want to suppress it, ignore it, or will it away because it's going to live inside of us all the same.
1: Just because the story isn't true, You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters 100%. Yeah. So in your workbook, so how to meet yourself, if you're listening right now and you haven't already picked up a copy of this, then please go pick up a copy right now before you do anything else. How to meet yourself, the workbook for self-discovery. There's there's four different sections, but the last three are meet your habit self, meet your emotional self, and meet your authentic self. Can you give us a brief overview of what those three things are?
0: Yeah, 100%. And so I very strategically put that section three, meet your authentic self. Imagine Most people who pick up this workbook are interested in getting to know who they really are and Until And the reason why I did not begin the book with that is until we rebuild that conscious connection to our habit self or the body, all of the daily actions that we're taking or not taking that are impacting our stress, our ability to tolerate stress, our ability to stay regulated and grounded and connected to who we are in any given moment that begins again with that foundation. As you enter in section one, you'll learn about all of the different daily habits that many of us do, you know, are present within our days that might be creating or continuing that dysregulation in our nervous system, because our nervous system is foundational. It's going to be the difference between I'm reacting to this moment to I'm feeling what's happening and how I'm feeling about this moment. And I'm responsive. I can be a conscious participant and intentional about what I do next, breaking some of those old patterns of reactivity and peeling back then that once I have that foundational layer of stability and connection to my body, I can begin to peel back all of the onion of our mental world and all of those habitual narratives that again, were created in one early environment that our mind will continue to assign as the current meanings, giving us the opportunity to see Things like our ego, our inner child, and all of those rehearsed stories and how they're coloring our reactions in real time. Over time, then peeling back those layers of the onion, now we're left with space, space to begin to enter section three and tune into and get curious and explore things like purpose and passion and creativity, gifts that I believe are inherent in each of us. But because of our conditioning, because of our patterning, because of our dysregulation in our nervous system, which won't prioritize things like purpose, passion, future, I'm just trying to survive this moment right here, right now. There's no space or time for my attention somewhere else. I might not be connected to those yet, which is again, why you'll meet that in section three, creating the safety, the grounding, pulling back all of the impact of these early stories and this conditioning will now give you the space to reconnect with who you really are.
1: I love what you said about being a conscious participant, because sometimes I I take on this role of, of, in most things, I preach the radical responsibility thing, which is take responsibility for everything you can. And I think there's just much more empowerment in believing that even though something may not have appeared to be on me, that even believing that it still was on me gives me more power to change it or fix it or improve it and prevent it from maybe happening again. However... It can feel sometimes disempowering when there's a bunch of these other external factors that are creating something inside of me that feels opposing to what I believe or what I believe about myself. And I, I really like that that term being a participant, a conscious participant, because it's it's accepting the responsibility that you have in the scenario, but also acknowledging that there are outside forces that there's I didn't sleep enough last night. I'm I have stress in my with with my kids or with my wife or with my business or whatever and then and then you add on top of that that I have pressure from outside investors and you add on on top of that I have this thing and then that thing happened to me when I was a kid and then I feel like crap or maybe I'm still ling- I still have a cold that's lingering. There's so many external factors that can facilitate or influence the way that you're acting or thinking in that moment. And so just acknowledging that it's not just me that has the ability to make the decision to get out of it. It's also, there's a lot of other stuff that's going on. So just acknowledging that there are external things that you don't really have that much control over, but you do have control of the thing that you do have control over. I think that that's a really really good way of looking at it. So I appreciate you for for parsing that up for us. So again, How to Meet Yourself, the workbook for self-discovery by Dr. Nicole Apera. Please go pick up a copy of this book. And Nicole, I would love to transition here and talk a little bit about the business side because a lot of my, of my audience are entrepreneurs and want to know how you have done what you've done up to this point. And I was listening to something of yours earlier and realized that you didn't start posting on Instagram until 2018. Is that right? Yes. Yes so 2018 in the last 5 years you've gone from 0 to 7 or 8 million followers on Instagram millions of followers on TikTok you got millions on every platform you're involved in you're a multiple new york times best selling author how and why like where did this come from 5 years ago that's just it's such a short period of time to to be able to achieve the things that you've been able to achieve why did you want to do it in, to begin with and how did it happen
0: Yeah, it's even mind-blowing, honestly, Travis, when I hear you recite back the litany of incredible things and opportunities that have come to creation. Because if I'm being honest, if you would have spoke to me a decade ago when I was that therapist with my shingle up in in Philadelphia, I never would have spoken words like author, like public life, like visible in any way. And I got to the part honestly in my healing journey where I started to see how much I watered myself down because I was taught to predominantly in my field. Who one of the things that we learn is not to be a human in the room. People want professionals, they want Mm. tools, they don't want to, they don't want your humanity. So I watered myself down. That was very much in alignment with. The pattern i saw in my personal life i didn't share my thoughts with people i didn't share how i really felt i was always filtering things through just like i did in childhood a lens of how will this impact you and if i had the idea that it would create more stress more worry, or worry would paint me as less anything less than perfect I would just suppress it, keep it in and modify myself. So even creating the Instagram account wasn't necessarily with the aspiration to, to be public, to get a book deal, to do all of the things that I've been gifted the opportunity to do. It was actually an exercise in me having a space to begin to share about myself, about the reality and the realizations that I was coming to and the work and the change that I was creating in my life. And one of the overwhelming things that I was met with was how universally resonating, not only aspects of my own struggles and my own journey, healing from anxiety, healing from this cultural patterning of always putting my family first and how resonating that was with the global collective, how much people were desiring of the tools, the community, the connection. So for yeah. me, it, it grew out of just the intuitive, right, next step of, wow, there's a big community here. And I'm starting to finally, for the first time in my life, feel a little less alone. This is an opportunity for me to begin to now talk practically, talk about these concepts in ways that are understandable, give people the tools to relate the concept to their daily life. Because one of the things I very much knew early on is in talking to a global audience, not all of these humans have access to this information, to the services that we do here in the United States, to these conversations, to the community and to these tools. So for me, it's just been a journey of one intuitive, like need, desire that I was hearing from the community that I was connecting with that created then the membership Um, that created then the opportunities to translate this work into books that are now translated around the world. So for me, again, it began as an exercise in my own healing journey. And I think because Mm. of its universal need and universal resonance has really shifted into, it's why, you know, the numbers and the community is as large as it is, and has then opened the doors for opportunities to put things in books, have a podcast, open up a membership, do all the things.
1: One thing I really appreciate about your work here is that I'm a big fan of anybody that goes against organizational traditional things. I just I, I like the I like the kind of rebel story <laughs> a little bit, which it feels weird to call you a rebel of all people, but within your field and your practice, that's how a lot of people looked at you for a long time, and probably some of them still do. But what I really appreciate about appreciate about your work is that you met people where they were and not where you wanted them to be. And that I think is a big problem in the clinical world is that they want everybody to adapt to the way that their practice is being done. They want you to disrupt your life, to come in once a week, to have a full conversation. And then as soon as the hour's up, it's boom, ding. All right. Now we all of a sudden can't talk about this. Well, you just dug something super important and deep out of my past. And I'm like in this deep emotional state, I'm in the middle of the story and it's, well, our hour's up. We'll see you next week. And it's like, but I, but I like There's no real space there to like work through some of those issues sometimes. And I'm not saying that you should not get clinical work. I'm not trying to down that side at all. I'm just saying that there's a lot of other people that either they will just not do it because of the stigma around it, or maybe they don't have access to the capital to do it, or maybe, like you said, they live in a different country and they don't have the type of infrastructure that we have. There's so many people that need the work or that need the tools and need the practices that will not meet a therapist in their office. And a a lot of times in these like older traditional industries, they're so dogmatic about how it should be done that they're not open to hearing other methods of potentially getting the word out there. And what you've done is basically, like I said earlier, like I said, with the beginning of this conversation, the group chats I have with my friends are mostly just us sending stupid memes and jokes to each other. And then there's like holistic psychologist stuff that we send to each other as well, because you're meeting people where they are. You're giving them something that they need while they're consuming something that they want, which is like, the foundation for continuing to spread a message to a lot of people is that it has to be digestible and you have to give it to them the way that they want to give it to them. And then you can give them what they need after you give them what they want, but you have to start with what they want. And so I really acknowledge your ability to recognize that early on and obviously resonated with enough people to blow up your audience over a long period of time. And you were able to do it through a ton of pressure and outside criticism from from people in the clinical world including this massive article that Vice wrote about you that almost painted you as like a freaking villain that you're being detrimental to people's mental health and stuff like that can you talk us through some of the criticisms that you've received along the way and and also like how that helped grow your brand because from what I remember and you can correct me if I'm wrong here I'd love to hear the timeline chronologically that vice piece really like actually helped propel you in a lot of ways to a lot of other different opportunities So can can you just walk us through that kind of timeline from 2018 till now and then a couple of those things like the vice thing and some of the other outside pressures that you've been, that you've had that have been negative.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate all of your your kind, supportive words, Travis, of acknowledgement. And I think something else that you know is a bit of a disservice that people want. Just to go back to that for just one quick second, I think people want the human in the room. I'm still struck to this day as I share aspects of my own struggles that continue to this day. The humanity in me, I met with oftentimes in my membership, just such relief when I share a little in difficult moment I had this morning or last week or whatever it might be, and there's just such relief that oh my gosh, you still struggle too. And I think in the field, we do a disservice with, and I understand the clinical idea of being this blank slate of having these, like you're saying, contained hours where time is up and now it's a structured session until next week and we could talk about it then. And I also understand the humanity. And I think that largely people do want to feel less alone in their struggles. I have heard from so many clients who won't even share what's really going on with therapists of no fault of the therapist because- it's shameful because you do have and you project this idea that oh, I can't share with this perfect human who has no issues in their life what's really happening with me. And I think that's a a large disservice. One of the aspects of the work that I do and of my journey was sharing the continued struggles that I have. And I think that's the the relief that is offered there. When I see articles like the Vice article, however long ago that came out on, and I hear the criticism, I think not only does some of it come from just outright misinterpretations of statements that I have not made, of words that have not come out of my mouth, mainly around like this idea. While I do talk about empowering people with tools to be this conscious, active participant in their journey, never once have I offered the opportunity or, or suggested that people don't get support if they have access and means to right. it, And again, when I see some of these criticism things, it's very adamantly it's being suggested that I've said otherwise. And that's just largely not the case. And then I, I think another reality that applies to all of us is we're all humans interpreting people's messages, creating stories of what we think they mean based on, again, this entire conversation you and I've been having, what we've interpreted from the past. So I think some amount of criticism is to be expected because we're not always going to be perceived the same way because We're not objective creatures. We're all subjectifying the reality around us. When things like that come out, while on one hand I can say it's it's par for the course, of course, there it is. There is the other hand that while whether or not it propelled me or not, I'm not actually sure. I do think that articles like that, while sometimes people can react very negatively to the content should they believe it and unfollow or do all the things, just as equally people can be attracted to it, can come over. So it could have drawn people my way I could be lying, however, if I said that it's just so easy to roll, allow those things to roll off my back. I'm still a human that very much feels threatened by this criticism, wants to yell out how they're wrong, how they're misinterpreting, or even just take my own advice of, oh, just let it be over there. You're just yeah. being misinterpreting. Keep your time, <laughs> attention, and focus here. And that's not the case. Even going back to something you beautifully said earlier, when I'm not eating well, when I'm not sleeping well, When I'm stressed out and I have a lot on my mind, it's very easy for me to give that criticism more weight, even to seek it out, to be reminded of all this terrible crap Mm. out there about myself in those moments. Seeing it, I don't know the exact numbers of how it helped, how it didn't help. What I do know is when those things happen, I have that whole variant, you know, all those various different responses. I can hold space for misinterpretation. I can hold space for just my ideas not being aligned with someone else's beliefs, their framework, their way of being. And I can hold space for the reality that I'm a human who can be impacted, hurt, and dysregulated when I see those things. And then again, being the conscious participant, it's my choice. I can choose how much I engage. I can choose how much attention I give it. I can choose the reframe of, okay, well, some people might've taken it negatively and I could see all the people who've taken it positively, but I get to choose how it is I interact with the reality that is there. And I'm anticipating it will probably always be there to some extent.
1: You are prolific in the sheer volume of valuable content that you release what's your guys's content strategy? How do you think about it? What's your schedule on that? Are you, how often do you record or how often are you writing stuff? Do you have team members that are doing this for you? We help a lot of people from just like a context perspective. We help a lot of people in my agency with creating podcasts and repurposing content and their overall content strategy and stuff. And you guys kill it and crush it with that on multiple platforms. So I'm curious to hear what your strategy and, and kind of day-to-day content operations look like.
0: Yeah. So generally, as we've been gradually now expanding across platforms, general strategy is always to look at the platform and the unique opportunity that I think each of them offer in terms of the content that's presented, the how content is presented. So we've gotten into video content for TikTok and little skits. So it's taking what exists and then seeing how we can modify the message, what it is that we want to share using the framework that, that that platform offers. So as we've been gradually expanding that, that means then, you know, thinking about content in new ways, thinking about how to present what was once a meme in more scripted delivery of these little vignettes that we've been doing or how mm. to translate it into a thread in Twitter. And so as we've been expanding we, expanding, we now need to expand the manpower behind it and having kind of team that helps post manage certain accounts. We've now having an, an Instagram account for the circle, for the, the soundboard, our podcast and all of the things. So making sure, however, That however it is, or whoever it is that's putting the, the message up, that it's still the voice, right? Coming from our ideas, the way that we would say things, tailored to the content, and then listening to the community on each of those platforms. and That's something that we have done from the beginning is always listening to how messages are landing, to what content is of interest, to what's the next question that comes to mind once you read this meme to the next meme to sequence then what happens next. And it's not anything that we've ever formulated, written down and never modified. It's actually a living, breathing conversation is the way I think I like to think of it with the communities that exist on all of these platforms, allowing it to be a collaborative effort of kind of what are you interested in? How is it easy to hear and communicate and metabolize these messages and make it as relatable as possible?
1: What does your team look like now just on the content side?
0: In terms of- Just number
1: of people, yeah.
0: We actually just uh, one of, we hired on a person who is helping us an individual with some back end things and actually who is able to translate into Arabic. So we have a new oh, movement where we're going to have some Arabic translation pages. So she's a new addition. Okay. And then we have another team member who runs some of the accounts. So it's a little bit of, I would say three or four people in general okay. and other things. Yeah, we don't sure. have just a content type designation often there are people that are wearing multiple hats working in the circle doing other things at once and doing that
1: and then how many uh, across all platforms combined even if it's the same video on four different things how many pieces of content do you think you're distributing on a monthly basis at this point
0: that's a really good question i don't know several several pieces of content usually go out on each platform a couple threads a day a couple yeah Post a day. So Our you're, video you're, content gets batched in terms of when we're recording it. Usually, so you're up basically. around
1: three, four 500, maybe if you add them all up across all platforms.
0: Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a that, lot.
1: That's the strategy. Yeah, that's that's why that's why I was asking. I was just curious. And yeah, that's something that's been a hypothesis of ours recently. Is just is just really shooting for quality of the content, but also volume of quality content, and then finding what works, and then creating more right. about that thing that works really well. Listen, Nicole, I know, I know we got to get running here pretty soon and I don't want to take up too much of your time here. Thank you again for coming on the show, the book, how to meet yourself, the workbook for self-discovery. Please, please, please go pick up a copy of this book and you will be thanking me eternally if you do. And uh, please go follow Nicole on all channels at the the.holistic.psychologist. And I know that you're going to enjoy the stuff that she puts out over there. Cause again, it's, it's one of our, you know, my friend group's most, most shared accounts. So I appreciate you for coming on. Last question before, before we take off here, Nicole, this show, Travis makes friends was rebranded from build your network. Last time we talked, the show was called build your network. Now it's called Travis makes friends. And the reason for that was that we wanted to take the idea of building high quality relationships and move it outside of just people who are networking to get ahead in their career and their business. And just basically be like, look, this is a good thing for everybody to do just because it enriches your life and makes you a higher quality individual. So last question is just about how would you recommend adults, because it's more difficult as an adult, go find and create new friendships?
0: Yeah, really, really great question. I think relationships are the fabric of our being. We need them. And I think the number one suggestion I can have is to be flexible in terms of where you're meeting the people. Obviously, I'm looking at the virtual space. We have a prolific, vibrant community of individuals that you might become. And, and many have developed deep relationships with humans that are living literally on the other side of the world so i think obviously while nothing beats being able to have coffee or dinner or go to a movie with a physical human i think as we're beginning to maybe experiment with new ways of being with new authentic friendships even tying this whole conversation full circle the online world might be a great place to start. It might feel a little less threatening even to begin to experiment with these new ways of being with someone who isn't. You can who yeah. you can see at the store next week and it can really give the basis and for deep, deep, deep friendships that over time maybe can translate to in-person friendships. But I don't, I don't think it's anything to disregard or to look down on is the virtual landscape because the reality of it is you might not live in a town that has aligned people. Everyone right. that you might, again, might be that embedded network of people who are trying to, because of their own desire to be familiar, keep you the same. So for some of us, it is looking outside of our communities, which might be on the virtual space.
1: Yeah. Search for commonality rather than physical proximity, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nicole, I I could keep asking you questions for the next three and a half hours, and I know you don't have the time, so I will let you go. Thank you so much for coming on another episode of the show. And I can't wait to promote the next book that comes out or whatever else you got going on. It's always a pleasure chatting
0: with you. Thank you so much for having me, Travis. And thank you all for listening.
1: That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to Travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's Travischapel.com slash team.